Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. As we continue going through the book of Genesis... The fateful day in history was April 26th, 1986. The country was the Ukraine. Many of you may have remembered remember the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. It was the worst accident in history related to radioactive power plants. Radioactive poison was released into the air, poisoning almost all of Eastern Europe. Uh, The World Health Organization reported up to 60,000 cancer deaths as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. Russian estimates that there were around 985,000 premature cancer deaths between 1986 and 2004 as a result of this radioactive fallout. It was a catastrophic disaster that impacted thousands of people, a a radioactive fallout, a nuclear meltdown, if you will. And yet, there's a greater fallout that's not radioactive, but spiritual. You see, as we looked at last week, when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden... When they transgressed God's command, when they ate the fruit, they brought a catastrophic disaster into the entire human race that affects every single one of us today and affects the created order itself. So what happened when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world? Sin came in, death came in, condemnation came in, guilt, humiliation. And this didn't just affect Adam and Eve, but it affects all of us. Remember, they were hiding from God. Instead of intimacy with God, there there was separation from God. Instead of intimacy with one another in that one flesh union, they were blaming one another. They were alienated, they were shameful, they were broken, they were fractured, they were guilty before God. And they brought this guilt and this shame and this alienation and this fracturing and this brokenness into the world and it affects every single one of us here today. So for this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to continue looking at the continuing effects of the fall. Last week, we left with a little bit of a heavy message. We left halfway through Genesis chapter 3, and I wanted you to feel the weight of the fall. I wanted you to feel the weight of the alienation and the guilt and the shame that Adam and Eve felt because before we truly can experience the sweetness of the gospel, we need to understand the sting of guilt. But here's the overarching theme of today's passage. This is where the good news comes into play. Here's where the gospel speaks to us this morning, a better word than what the world has to offer In this passage of Scripture, we see this. Here's the overarching theme. God promises sovereign grace in the midst of painful judgment. God promises sovereign grace 
in the midst of painful judgment. So let's pick up in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 14. It's where we left off last week, and we're going to read the rest of the chapter. And we're going to see how God brings grace in the midst of judgment. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. For this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to see this passage unfold in three movements, three major issues, three big ticket items that we need to see. And here's the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. The sentence of judgment. The sentence of judgment. God pronounces his sentence of judgment first of all upon the serpent, then upon the woman, and then upon the man. So let's look at the serpent first. God says there in verse 14, Cursed are you above all the livestock. Cursed. This word cursed means that God is pouring out his his wrath. God is pouring out his justice. God is bringing condemnation upon the serpent. And notice what he says, Because you've done this, Now we have to ask a question. What is the this that the serpent was guilty of doing? Now I don't have time to rehash this. If you missed last week's sermon, go back and download it on iTunes or listen on the internet or however you get it through our church app. But let me just remind you there were four things that Satan did and we looked at this last week. Number one, he questions God's authoritative word. Number two, he questions God's goodness. Number three, he prompts them to be prideful, to be like God. And number four, he tells them a bold-faced lie that there are no consequences to sin. And so God says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and you're going to eat dust the rest of your life. Now, does this mean that snakes only eat dust? No. It's a metaphorical way of saying he will slither in utter humiliation. The fate of Satan is humiliation, abasement, embarrassment, 
Now, we're going to come back to verse 15. Don't think I left you there hanging. We're going to come back because that's the major text. It's the most important text in Genesis 3. We're going to come back to it. But what does he do to the woman? God pronounces two sentences of judgment on the woman. Notice what he says in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And all the women here that have given birth are saying, Thank you, Eve. The whole idea of painful childbirth. I've I've thought about this this week. There's something beautiful about giving birth to a baby. I mean, it's a miracle of childbirth where God births a child, and it's just a wonderful miracle. It's, It's glorious, it's beautiful, but yet it's painful. Why is it painful for the woman? Why is there pain in childbearing? I think it's a visual reminder. It's a painful reminder that in the midst of God bringing this glorious miracle into the world, it's also a reminder that this baby is going to be born in a sinful world, and this baby is going to be born a sinner, and this baby is going to grow up and need Jesus Christ. And so there's this bittersweet thing about giving birth that it's a, it's a reminder of the curse. It's a reminder of death. It's a reminder of sin. But here's, there's another issue here that we often overlook. We, we often say, yeah, there's the pain in childbearing, but, but notice what else there is that's going to happen as a result of sin. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this does not mean she will have a sexual desire for her husband. That's not what that means. What does this mean that she will have desire for her husband, and he will rule over her? What does this mean? The only other place this word desire and rule show up together is right in the next chapter. We'll look at this next week. Look at Genesis 4, verse 7. This is when Cain is about to kill Abel. Hasn't killed him yet. He's about to kill Abel. And God gives him a warning in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What does this mean that Eve will have a desire for her husband? What it means is that she's going to want to dominate him. She's going to want to manipulate him. She's going to want to control him. She's going to want, there's going to be a a role reversal in marriage relationships. You see, from the beginning, before sin entered the world, God had ordained that the husband is to exercise spiritual, godly, humble leadership. And the wife is to graciously submit to her husband's leadership. Don't have time to talk about that whole issue this morning. But after the fall, after sin came into the world, a husband's going to want to have to abuse and rule over his wife, and the wife's going to want to rule over her husband. So you're going to have this clash in marriages where husbands and wives are going to be wanting to jockey for position as who is to be the leader of the household. Wives are going to want to now dominate their husbands. They're going to want to step into that vacuum of leadership and want to and want to lead. And husbands are going to want to rule. Now, you see this in two ways in husbands, two extremes. One way that husbands rule over their wives is by being passive. They just sit back and let her take the lead, and they don't take the lead, and they're passive in their leadership. We probably see more of that in the church. The other extreme is abuse, flat-out abuse, where a husband may beat his wife or abuse her. And so sin brings gender conflict, marriage conflict, role conflict into the marriage So pain and childbearing. So think about the most intimate relationships you have as a person. Husband and wife, parent and children, it affects those very intimate areas, the sin that came into the world. The serpent was cursed. 
Eve had pain in childbearing, and there's going to be gender, gender struggles, power struggles, and, and marriages. But let's look at what happens to the man. To the man, verse 17. To the Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. What's the first thing he says to Adam? You listened to your wife. You weren't the spiritual leader. You weren't taking leadership. You weren't driving the serpent out of the garden. You weren't protecting your wife. You weren't a buffer for your wife. You listened to her, and you willfully ate. Because you did this, here's the first thing that's going to happen. There's going to be painful toil that we're going to struggle with the land. The land, the very earth itself, is not going to be cooperative. It's going to yield thorns and thistles. We're going to have to farm. We're going to have to have weeds. We're going to have to have all these things happening in the actual earth itself. Why do you think there are earthquakes and tsunamis and floods and natural disasters and famine and disease and cancer? Those things came into the world as a result of Adam's sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The earth is groaning in labor pains. The earth is convulsing. The same way that Eve would have labor pains, right now the earth is convulsing. Tornadoes, natural disasters, volcanoes, tsunamis, floods. The entire created order is is groaning, is suffering until when? When Jesus comes back and creates the new heavens and the new earth. So the whole creation has been affected by Adam's sin. So marriage relationships have been affected. Parenting relationships have been affected. The whole universe has been affected. But then here's the 100% statistic that's going to be true for every single one of you. Most pastors stand up and say, this could possibly be true. Nine out of ten people believe this. 80%. Here's the 100% statistic. Every single one of you in this room, this is going to happen to you. I guarantee it. You're going to die. Unless the Lord comes back. That's the only caveat. You are going to die. Verse 19 You're going to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's physical death as a result of Adam's sin. Now, what did God say to Adam? If you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die. The serpent said, you're not going to die. Eve believed the serpent instead of God, and so what did God say? You ate it, you brought death into the world, you're going to die. Psalm 103, 14 through 16. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. We are like grass. We're all going to die. We're going to go back to the dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And then Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
So what's the first thing we've seen here? The sentence of judgment. A judgment on the serpent, a judgment on Eve, and a judgment on the man. But if that weren't bad enough, let's look at the second thing this morning. I call it the exile of banishment. And I use those words very carefully. Those are biblical terms. The exile. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Notice the language that's used there. If you go down and you look at verse 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He drove out the man. It's very, very strong in the Hebrew language, to drive out the man. It literally means to divorce. When a husband puts his wife away, when he drives uh, his wife away, it's almost as, as if Adam and Eve and God had a divorce. They were banished. One of the most devastating consequences of sin is separation from God. Keep your finger here. I can't say that anymore with all the electronic Bibles. Keep your finger in here or swipe or click and go over to Romans chapter 5. Some of us purists still use a real Bible. These are real Bibles, by the way. I'm using an iPad, but I don't have my Bible on my iPad. It's just my notes here. Romans chapter 5 is a commentary on Genesis chapter 3. It's almost a mere image, if you will. Paul explains in Romans chapter 5 in more theological detail what the narrative in Genesis 3 explains. So I want you to see Romans chapter 5, and I want you to look at the wording that Paul uses. Paul uses some very strong wording here to describe every single person born into this world without Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Paul says without Christ, you're under God's wrath. You're an enemy of God. You are separated from God. You are alienated from God. You've been banished from God's presence. Every single one of us is born outside the garden. Every single one of us is born in a state of banishment, in exile. Paul says in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, that, that's who we once were. We were alienated from God. We were hostile against God. We were doing evil deeds. But what has he done now? He's now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above him before above reproach before him. You see, we need to be reconciled to God. We need the wrath to be removed. We need the, the warfare to transition to peace. We need the estrangement and the alienation to be canceled so that we can be back into a right relationship with God. And, and keep on going in Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam brought sin into the human race. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us is going to die. And not just a physical death, but go down to verse 18. It tells us there's a spiritual aspect to this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Condemnation, death, alienation, estrangement, the Bible is very clear. 
Without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I need to stop here. Let us never ever downplay total depravity. It is there in technicolor Big screen, HD, chapter 3, Romans 5. We are all born helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound without Jesus. And we've got to get this. We've got to feel the weight of this. We've got to understand this. Because until you feel the excruciating weight of your alienation from God, your separation from God, your judgment under God, you will never appreciate what Christ has done for you to bring you back to God. And so we have to ask the question here in Genesis 3 because it's very depressing. We have to ask a huge question here. At some point, we've got to say, where's the hope? Where's the gospel? How's sin going to be dealt with? How's death going to be swallowed up in victory? How's the alienation going to be brought back together? What's the answer? What's the hope? How's God going to deal with the guilt and the shame and the punishment? Because you see, here's the issue. The Bible could have ended right here. And God could have banished Adam and Eve forever and sent them to hell, and we could say, God, you've done no wrong. Did God owe them anything at this point? The Bible could have just stopped right there, and Adam and Eve could have gone to hell, and that would have been the end. But that's not the end. It's only chapter 3 of your Bible. We've got a whole rest of the Bible. So what I want us to see this morning, which is the good news, the hope. Thirdly, what I want us to see is the gospel of hope. The gospel. This is glorious, people, that the gospel is first announced here in the third chapter of Genesis in two verses. Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.21 both announce the gospel. And at first glance, you may think, well, I don't see the gospel. I don't see Jesus. I don't see the hope. Let me explain to you this morning the gospel of hope. If we take these two verses together, Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.21, what I want us to do is I want us to see six promises. Six promises that come right here in chapter 3 of Genesis that announce the gospel of hope, that announce the coming of Christ, that give us hope in the midst of judgment. So here's the first one. Salvation will come from God's free and sovereign mercy. Genesis 3.15. This is called the Protevangelium. In other words, it's the first time the gospel is announced in the entire Bible. But notice what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God says, I'm going to do it. God does not look to Adam and even say, hey, guess what? You guys really blew it. I want you to come up with the plan of salvation. Why don't you do something here to fix it? Why don't you come up with the plan? Why don't you save yourselves? Why don't you, hey, and Adam, let's just create another covenant of works and see if you do better this time. No, God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. 
And here's the thing that's foreign to our, to our ears this morning. God is not obligated to do this. Is God under any coercion or any force to fix things with Adam and Eve? Absolutely not. What are Adam and Eve doing? They are hiding from God amongst the trees. Are they seeking for God? No. Are they asking forgiveness for God? No. Are they owning up to their sin? No. But even if they did own up to their sin, and even if they did ask for forgiveness, and even if they did seek God, is God obligated to give them mercy? No. What is grace? Is grace something that God is obligated to give? Is grace something God is forced to have to give? You see, grace ceases to be grace if God is obligated to give it. He gives it because he gives it. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. We deserve alienation. That's what we deserve. That's what God's obligated to give. That's what God owes us. But for God not to give us those things, for God to to say, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. That's his prerogative. That's his sovereign freedom. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said it this way. The whole glory of salvation is that though we deserve nothing but punishment and hell and banishment out of the sight of God to all eternity, yet God in his own love and grace and wondrous mercy has granted us this salvation. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The first thing we need to understand about the gospel here is God doesn't owe us the gospel. God doesn't owe us salvation. God doesn't owe us anything. God didn't owe Adam and Eve anything. God sovereignly and freely chooses to show mercy and grace to sinners who otherwise deserve nothing but banishment out of his sight. But here's the second thing that we see from Genesis 3.15. Salvation will come from a redeemer who is a man. It's not going to be an angel. It's not going to be an animal. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring your descendant, your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a he coming on the scene. There's going to be an offspring of a woman. There's going to be a descendant of a woman. And not just any descendant, not just any man, but one who's fully God and fully man at the same time, Jesus Christ the Messiah. What does John 1.14 tell us? The word became flesh, that's Jesus, and he dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to put on flesh as God in the flesh to live on earth as a man. Now, how did Jesus come? In a few months, what are we going to celebrate? Christmas. Jesus came born of a woman, born of a virgin, born of the offspring of a woman. Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Right here in Genesis 3.15, we've got the announcement of the virgin birth. This offspring, this descendant will come from a woman. And what Paul tells us in Galatians is at just the right time, God brought Jesus into the world in the form of a servant. 
Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being made in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's the big question that's going to confront us as we go through Genesis and really all the way up until Matthew. What's the fate of this offspring? What's the fate of this seed? How will the descendant come? How will Jesus come? Because in the very next chapter, Cain kills Abel. Whoops, that messed up the plan, didn't it, God? No, the seed will carry all the way through and Mary will give birth to Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Thirdly, salvation will come by a substitutionary sacrifice. Notice what it says in verse 15, the very end there. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Satan is going to bruise the heel of Jesus. In other words, this is a foreshadowing that Jesus is going to experience some type of excruciating, painful death. The death on the cross. But not just an ordinary death on the cross, but what we call a substitutionary death. Go to Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You may just pass over that verse and say, okay, God gave them clothes, cool. How did God give them clothes? It's not in the text, but it's implied he had to what? Kill an animal. God killed an animal in the place of Adam and Eve and clothed them. God clothed Jesus. I mean, God clothed Adam and Eve with Garments of animal skins, the same way that God killed his very own son in the place of sinners. It's a picture of what Jesus came to do, to die in our place. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has said. Look at your master and king upon the cross, all stained with blood and dust. There was his heel most cruelly bruised now think about what we've seen so far salvation will come by god's sovereign grace salvation will come through the infinite god man born of a virgin salvation will come through a substitutionary atonement where jesus dies in the place of sinners but number four it comes through a victorious resurrection there would not be a lasting wound notice what it says there read it carefully The head of Satan is bruised, meaning a mortal wound, but only the heel of Jesus is bruised, meaning that it's not a permanent crushing. Yes, Jesus would die on the cross. Yes, Jesus would be suspended on that tree. And yes, there'd be nails in his hands and and nails in his feet and a crown of thorns on his head. And yes, he'd bleed out, but they would put him in a tomb. But three days later, he would rise again and crush Satan. Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord be with you. Colossians 2, he says he disarmed. He disarmed Satan through his resurrection. Do you realize that Satan has been disarmed? He has no arms. Christ conquered him 
on the cross. He won the victory. That's why we can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ burst from that tomb, he crushed the head of the serpents. But there's going to be a final day. A final day when the serpent's head will be finally crushed once and for all. Revelation 20, verse 12. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. You shall bruise his head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.21, we see the gospel. It comes by God's sovereign grace. It comes through a man born of a woman, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in the flesh. It comes through a substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, dying in the place of sinners. And it comes through a victorious resurrection. But yet there's a fifth thing. And we see it in verse 21, pictured for us. Salvation will come by an external righteousness credited to sinners. You see, when God clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, he is painting a picture for us of something that God does for us in the gospel. How did they deal with sin before? They made for themselves fig leaves. They tried to deal with the problem themselves. It was some man-made attempt to deal with the alienation, to deal with the nakedness, to deal with the guilt, to deal with the shame. And so that's what they try to do. Now, here's the issue. We cannot in and of ourselves remove the sin. We can't clothe ourselves with righteousness. We can't deal with the problem. We can't be good enough. We can't go to church enough. We can't be baptized enough. We can't give to the poor enough. We can't do enough to somehow deal with the sin in our life. What we need is we need the blood of Christ to come from the outside of us. That's what we were saying earlier. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but fig leaves, right? I hope not. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but me trying really hard. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but me checking off that I went to church this week. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. So just as God killed an animal and put the clothing on the people, God kills his own son and clothes us with the righteousness outside of ourselves. And you may ask, how come fig leaves can't take away my sin? How come good deeds can't take away my sin? How come being a good person can't take away my sin? Let's not downplay sin. Your sin and my sin is too offensive and too cosmic and too tragic before a holy God for any of us to even attempt to deal with it. We cannot deal with it on our own we have to be justified by faith we need the righteousness from someone outside of us to come and clothe us with his righteousness jesus needs to come from the outside and give us his righteousness you see when we're justified the bible says in romans 5 1 we've been justified by faith when we're justified by faith god does something amazing he takes our sin and credits us to christ's account and takes christ's righteousness and credits it to our account so that we stand not guilty martin luther gave a very vivid illustration of this back in germany back in the 1500s all across germany in order to fertilize and some of you guys that are farmers may understand this better than i am to fertilize your field they collected all of the dung from the animals and they would have these big piles called dung hills pleasant sight right pile of poop 
for kids that don't know what I'm talking about. Big old pile. And Martin Luther said, that's our sin, a dunghill. But then when winter would come and the snow would fall from the heavens, it would cover the dunghill and it would be pristine, it would be white, it would look beautiful, and you would have no idea that it was a dunghill underneath it. And Martin Luther said, that's exactly what happens when God gives us this righteousness. We are stinky, we are putrid, we are foul to the core of our being. But when the righteousness from above, you see, the dunghill doesn't produce the snow, does it? We don't produce the righteousness. It has to come from outside. When that righteousness comes from outside and it clothes us and it blankets us, when God looks down on the dunghill, what does he see? A nice, white, pristine hill. When God looks down upon your life in Christ, what does he see? A stinking, rotten, putrid dunghill? Or does he see the righteousness of Christ? Does he see Christ clothing you in his righteousness? And so right here from Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.21, we find the gospel. But yet there's one last thing. And I alluded to it this morning, earlier in my prayer time. And this is something that we're going to have to face as God's people. Here's the sixth thing. Salvation will involve a perpetual conflict between God's people and Satan. Notice what God says in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity. That word enmity means warfare, conflict, whatever, whatever type of word that you want to make the connotation there. Enmity, conflict, warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now we know from the scriptures that until Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the age, there's going to be perpetual conflict between the people of God and Satan. So here's what you should expect, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you claim the name of Jesus and you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, expect to be a target of the enemy. When you become a Christian, you might as well just put a big, huge target on your shirt that says, flaming darts come to me because I'm a child of Christ. Now listen to what Spurgeon said again. The wisdom from Spurgeon. He said this, expect to be assaulted. If you've fallen into trouble through being a Christian, be encouraged by it. Don't regret it or fear it, but rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For there is still warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And if you did not experience any of it, you might begin to fear that you were on the wrong side. You must not think that the devil cares much about you. The battle is against Christ in you. Why does the devil hate you? Because he hates the Jesus in you. The devil hates you. The devil hates the gospel. The devil hates the advance of the gospel. The devil hates everything that's happened this morning. The devil hates it. And he may even be trying right now to send his flaming darts to distract and to distort and to confuse. And the moment you walk out there, you may be flamed with, be, be assaulted with the flaming darts of the evil one. He absolutely hates this church. He hates you, he hates me, and the reason he hates it is because he hates the Jesus in us. And he's going to fight against Jesus. But what does it say here? It's a losing battle. 
his head is going to be crushed. He is fighting a losing battle. So how do you resist the onslaught of the enemy? How do you fight this warfare? Well, we've got the gospel. You've got the blessed Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, working 24-7 on your behalf to fight the battle for you. And we need to claim the promises of Scripture and claim the promises of the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves every day and remind ourselves of the power of the gospel, remind ourselves of the imputed righteousness, remind ourselves of the sovereign grace of God, remind ourselves of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, remind ourselves that Christ stood in our place and suffered, remind ourselves of the empty tomb, remind ourselves of the power of the Holy Spirit, remind ourselves every day of that, And when we remind ourselves of that, we stand firm, and the Bible says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And we need to remember this one verse, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And right here in Genesis 3, 15, it's prophesied from the very beginning pages of the Bible. That in the midst of painful judgment, in the midst of alienation, in the midst of sin, in the midst of guilt, shame, banishment, exile, condemnation, death, in the midst of all of these tragic consequences, God in his sovereign grace and God in his mercy and God in his compassion and God in his love says, I'm not leaving humans to figure it out for themselves. I'm not leaving them in the dark. I'm not leaving them hopeless or helpless or hellbound. I'm going to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus Christ right here from the opening pages of the Bible. Praise be to God that God promises grace in the midst of judgment. Are you here this morning and have you experienced grace in the midst of judgment? If you die this morning, will you be banished? Will you be driven out of God's presence? Will you experience the alienation and the shame of not having that righteousness of Christ? Will you, on the final day of judgment, be a stinking, rotten dunghill in God's sight? Or will you have the righteousness of Christ credited to you so that you can stand accepted because you've trusted in this one who's crushed the head of the serpent? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning, and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper part of the joy in taking the Lord's Supper is that we can come to the Lord's table this morning with confidence that the victory has been won. We can come to the Lord's table with the confidence that Satan has been crushed. We can come to the Lord's table knowing that God had a plan to send Jesus as the Messiah to die in our place and rise again. We can come to the Lord's table proclaiming his death until he comes with power, with victory, with assurance, with confidence, because of the blood of Christ. So would you spend a few moments this morning preparing your heart to worship Jesus through the Lord's Supper as we proclaim his death, as we celebrate his death. And praise be to God, it was promised on the very first pages of Scripture in the midst of tragic, painful judgment that Adam and Eve brought into the world. God said, I'm going to overcome that judgment, that pain, that alienation, that banishment by sending my one and only son, Jesus. And if you're here this morning, the promise from Scripture is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon Jesus this morning. Trust in Jesus this morning.
repent of your sins and believe in Jesus this morning. Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, would we rest in the victory that Christ has won the battle? Would we rest in your mercy? Lord, can we just be excited this morning that we can say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sitting? It's not there because Christ has won the victory. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, may we examine ourselves, may we prepare our hearts, may we proclaim your death until you come, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.